Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. This morning, I want to introduce a subject that we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks through the Christmas season. Um, And it's a subject that you often find connected with two others uh, throughout the New Testament. Very often, you find um, this triad of faith, hope, and love. And uh, we preach a lot of sermons about faith. Uh, we preach a lot of sermons about love, um, but we don't preach very much about hope. And, and hope is a very, very important thing. So um, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about hope. Now, not hope as in like, I hope last year's Christmas lights worked this year, okay? <laughs> we're not talking about that kind of hope. Um, we're going to be talking about this, this hope that keeps us going through the toughest of times. And, and we as humans, we are incurable hopers. We are. Hope is why people get married. Hope is why people have children. Hope is why people spend thousands of dollars to send their children off to college. Hope is why people read self-help books and go to counselors and go on blind dates and buy treadmills and ab machines and all of the fitness equipment. Hope is why 40,000 people keep showing up Sunday after Sunday at the Oakland Coliseum in Three Calm Park. (laughs) Hope is why kids look forward to Christmas morning. Hope is why we read and study scripture. Hope is why we're here this morning. Because we have hope. The human spirit thrives on hope. And when things seem hopeless and all hope is lost, it can be absolutely devastating. We look at the state of the world, international events, we look at our own society, and maybe even the circumstances in your own life, and we wonder sometimes, is God really actively engaged? Is there hope? Does God care? Is he doing anything? Does he care about this world? Does he care about me? Or is he just kind of detached sitting up in heaven, just watching it all kind of play out. Back in the 1700s, in the Age of Enlightenment, there actually was this, um, this theory promoted uh, about what was called the clockwork universe, that, that maybe God created, but it was just like this, this time mechanism that he put together, and then he pushed the button and wound it all up and let it go, and now it's on its own. Sometimes it feels that way. We want to believe there's a God. We want to believe that he, if not controlling, that at least in some level, he is in control of what's going on in our world. But we wonder sometimes. And then we come to the Christmas story. We begin to realize that there is hope. That God is actively engaged. And and in that birth of Jesus, like in no other time in history, did God make his his work and his presence known. And that there is meaning and there is purpose and that our lives do matter. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story in terms of hope. And if you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to take a section of the Christmas story that maybe you haven't heard very much about. You may, you're probably pretty familiar with Mary and Joseph and the no room in the inn and the shepherds and the magi and all that kind of stuff. But maybe you're not quite as familiar with this part of the story. So let me give you a little bit of a background here. Before the angel appeared to Mary, an angel appeared 
to a man named Zechariah, who was a priest in Israel. And he was performing his priestly duties, and an angel appeared to him. And, and he, by the way, was married to a woman named Elizabeth, who was a relative of Mary's. And so in performing his priestly duties, an angel appears to him and say, said to him, you are going to have a son. Now, he and Elizabeth had no children, and they were getting on in years. And, and, and Zechariah found this kind of hard to believe. And he questioned it, and he doubted it. And so the angel said, yes, you will have a child. And, and as a sign to you, you are going to be struck dumb. You will not be able to speak until the child is born. Now, I know for some of you, the thought of a spouse, silence for nine months sounds pretty good, okay? But the whole point was that God is at work here. And so, in fact, he was struck dumb. And he had no, no ability to speak. Until his child was born. And it was a big argument about what this child would be named. The angel had said, you're going to name him John. He was going to become John, as we know, John the Baptist. And there was big discussion. And, 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 and on a tablet, he wrote, his name will be John. And the minute he wrote those words, his tongue was loosened. And the very first words out of his mouth are recorded for us. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67, it was a, a, a prophetic utterance that God spoke through him. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 67, where it says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from, those of the, from the hand of those who hate us to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then speaking of his own child, and you, my child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine light on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. In that prophetic pronouncement... God was bringing hope to this world. He says, there is reason for hope. There is reason for hope. And there's a lot of reasons for hope for our world. There is hope for our world because God himself has pledged himself to this world unconditionally. He has pledged himself to us unconditionally. He prophesies in verse 68, he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of his servant David as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now, those are two key people in Israel's history, Abraham and David. Abraham was the father of the nation. All of Israel were descendants of Father Abraham. He was a key figure in the history of Israel. He was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And King David was the, was the greatest king that ever lived. 
He ruled over the house of Israel at its, high, at its heyday. And so these are really two key figures that he's referring back to. And what he's saying is God has been at work in history. But not just that they were important people. There was something else about that. That these two men were recipients of what is called a covenant. That God had made a solemn vow, an unconditional oath, a covenant with these two men. In Genesis 18, it said, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God made a promise to Abraham that you were going to be a father of a great nation and not just of one nation, you were going to be a father that is a blessing to all nations. He made a promise, a solemn vow, centuries beforehand. He made a promise and a covenant to David. Psalm 89. I have made a covenant. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. God made a promise to David. An unconditional covenant. He said, you will be king and there will always be a line from your throne. From your line, there will be a king. And so he points out these two people, not just because they were important in history, but because they were signs of when God had made covenants. Now, a covenant is a very, very important thing. And when I do um, premarital counseling, I tell people when you take those marriage vows, it's not a contract. Because some people say things like, well, it's just a piece of paper. It's just a... No, it's not. Marriage is meant to be a covenant. And a covenant is different from a contract. See, a contract is something that we write up to protect ourselves. You make a promise to do something for me. I make a promise to do something for you. And we sign a contract because if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, I have recourse. I can sue you. I can get back at you. If you let me down, I have a way to get back at you. That's a contract. Covenant is far different. Covenant says, I will do this for you no matter what. And you may promise to do this and that for me. But even if you don't, I won't stop loving you. I won't give up on you. I make this solemn vow. This is an oath that I take, and it is my promise, and I will never break it. And that is the way that God has worked through human history. He has worked in human history through covenant. The creator God of not only this world, but our solar system, which revolves around a sun that is just but a speck, a small star in a great galaxy called the Milky Way, which is just one galaxy among thousands of galaxies that we find throughout the universe. And for some reason, known only to him, in his mercy and his grace, God is interested in us. God cares about this world. And he has made it plain by these covenants God has bound himself to humanity. And Jesus' coming was about to be the ultimate fulfillment of all of those covenants. He was going to be a descendant of Abraham. He came from the line of King David. That's his genealogy. And these two very important covenants in the history of Israel are being brought to fulfillment. That in Jesus Christ, he's coming not just to Israel... But what he promised to Abraham centuries ago, his coming to redeem the whole world. 
It's what Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31 of his prophecy, that I am making a new covenant, declares the Lord. Not like the covenant that they broke, but this is a new covenant written on the hearts of men. That God is doing something new. That this isn't just a clockwork universe, that God has just wound up the clock, pushed the button, and let it spin out. But that God is actively involved. God cares about this world. He cares about human events. He cares about you. And those times when you think it is all beyond hope and there is no future and there is no promise, God says, oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. I have bound myself to this world in a covenant that will not be broken. And Jesus has become the object and the focus and the guarantee of that covenant. We have hope because God has made this pledge. He has made this covenant. He has pledged himself to this world unconditionally. Now, it's one thing to be able to make a promise. To keep a promise is quite different. But see, God is not just a promise-making God. And our hope is in this, that whatever he's promised, he will fulfill. Because it's easy to make promises. Keeping them is far, far different. Just mass confession this morning, okay? Just show of hands. Let me just ask you, how many here have ever made a promise that you did not keep? Anybody? Okay, yeah, that's pretty much all of us. Okay, how about anybody here make a promise that you never intended to keep? No, no, don't raise your hands on that one. I won't make you confess on that one. Our God is not just a promise-making God. He's a promise-keeping God. And throughout human history, God has had an end in mind. And Zechariah prophesies, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and redeemed His people. Throughout human history, that is the story of God in human history. God redeeming His people. God making up for all of our faithlessness. God being faithful and fulfilling all that he has promised. And all through human history, you read through scripture, and that is the story of God in human history. Making promises, keeping promises. When we have broken them, he redeems us back. In fact, one of the prophets, one of the prophets whose name was Hosea, God actually had him act out in his own life with the people of Israel, what the world in general has done with God. He had this man named Hosea, Marry a woman, had children, and then she was unfaithful to him. Not just once, not just twice, but actually sold herself into prostitution. And God said through Hosea, this is how you have treated me, your groom. You have been unfaithful. You have played the prostitute with all of your own desires With all of your pagan idols, you have wandered far from me. But then he told Hosea to do something incredible. He said, now, you go back to the public square and you buy your wife back from her prostitution. You pay off those who have held her in captivity for this. Because this is what God says. Though you have been unfaithful, though you have played the prostitute, I will redeem you back to myself 
That's, that's the story of God in human history. And Zechariah is prophesying, it is about to happen. That God has been faithful even when his people are not. And you read through the history of the Old Testament. And if you have never done this, let me encourage you as we start a new year, make that a point. Read through Kings and Chronicles and you will find over and over again. And and King so-and-so was an evil king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And King so-and-so was a good king, but then he turned back to the pagan idols. And on and on and on. In fact, over and over again, there's one, one king named King Ahaz who sacrificed his own son to pagan gods. These are the kings of Israel. These are the chronicles of the people of Israel. This is how we have treated God. Unfaithful. And yet, God is still faithful. God didn't give up. He sent prophet after prophet to warn, to correct, to call back. And the people ignored. And the kings put them to death. And God kept calling them over and over and over again. And they ignored him, and they continued on their ways. And God came to a point where he said, this is your last chance. If you do not change, there is destruction coming to you because you have left your first love. And they ignored the prophecy, and it happened. First to the northern half of the kingdom, which was called Israel. And the Assyrian army came and destroyed the northern kingdom and took for themselves some of the brightest and best from from that nation back into Assyria with them and left some of their own people back there. So much to the point that the the northern kingdom was, was so decimated, it was no longer a kingdom. They were no longer Jewish. They were what became the Samaritans in Jesus' day who were looked upon by true Jews as half-breeds. They were not a real people anymore. And God said to the southern kingdom, if you don't shape up, the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. And they continued to ignore. And along came the Babylonians. And they took over the southern kingdom, came into Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, and carted off into exile Jews and left some of their own people. And everybody thought the Babylonians, they have taken over the Assyrians. They are a great empire. There, no one will ever conquer the Babylonians. And then came the Persians. And the Persians came along. And they ruled that empire, that whole area, for three, over 300 years. They were a powerful empire. And they were so powerful, everybody thought there will never be a greater empire than the Persians. In fact, they called their king the king of kings. And everybody thought, after, now listen, our nation has only been in existence less than 300, two, a little over 200 years. For over 300 years, the Persians ruled that whole area. And everybody thought, this is it. The Persian empire will be the end of it all. Except along came Alexander the Great and the Greeks who overthrew the Persians. And they became the great powerful nation and empire. And everybody thought the Greeks were it. And then came the Romans, who also came through. And here is Israel through human history, 700 years of being batted back and forth, pawns in this great empire building that was going on. 
And kings and conquerors and empires came and went and came and went. And Israel was left decimated. Alone. And all of Israel thought, has God forgotten us? Does God care? Is he involved in human events? Will he ever do anything to redeem his people? Because you see, even though God had prophesied through the prophets what was going to happen, he always left them with hope. Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 54, 8. I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. 700 years, all they had left was hope. Because of their mistakes, because of their rebellion, because of their failures. And I believe there are probably some of us here this morning because we all have failed. We have all made mistakes. Some huge mistakes, some little mistakes. We have all sinned. Sometimes maybe our sin by negligence, sometimes by outright rebellion, shaking our puny little fists at God and saying, I'm going to do it my way. I don't care what you say. And you might be here this morning. You would think, there is no hope for me. I have made such mistakes. I have sinned so badly. I have messed up my life so much. I have ruined my marriage. I have ruined my career. I have, there is no hope for me. And the message of the Christmas story is you are never beyond hope because there is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, a Redeemer for this world. And no mistake, no mistake, no hounding of your past can be beyond God's ability. And Zechariah prophesies, he's coming to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, and to enable us to serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. See, hope not only has to do with promise. Hope is what keeps us looking toward the future. We may look at our past and say, no hope for me, but God keeps pointing us to the future because He's made the promises And he will fulfill them. And there's one more reason for hope. And this is an important one. It's that even when God seems silent, he is still at work. Even when God seems silent in your own life, he is still at work. Because I think the most difficult aspect of hope is waiting. I hate to wait. I am one of the most impatient people And God has this way of working on me on this thing. I mean, and I've told you stories. I mean, you know how bad I am, okay? Deep, dark secrets. Just on this trip to Uganda, on our mission trip, um, and and coming back. And, you know, we spent like two weeks with very little sleep and doing all kinds of things. And then we take this overnight flight from, uh, from Entebbe Airport in Kampala to Amsterdam, which is where we catch our connecting flight. So it's an overnighter, and I don't sleep on planes at all, okay? And so I am so tired, and I'm so crabby, and I'm just biting my tongue not to, you know, jump down somebody's throat. And so they do things different. Security is different in in Europe, at least in Amsterdam. Because you don't go through one security to get into the terminal, and then you can go to whatever gate you want, okay? Every gate has security. Yeah. 
And everybody getting on that plane goes through security every time they get on a plane. So it doesn't matter that we came and got off a plane and we didn't leave the terminal. We got to go through security again. And it, I am dead tired and I'm so crabby and I am not in the front of the line. <laughs> and the line is moving slowly, slowly, slowly and People are taking, you know, and opening and going through the, you know, the whole thing and the stopped and getting the wand thing and all that. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this taking so long? Because they've got signs all along the line telling you, this is what you have to do with your personal items. Take off your belt. Take off your shoes. All, all um, gels and, and, and liquids must be in a little plastic bag. All of these things, they are on the sign all along as you're walking in this line. And not only that, not only that, they've got a big video screen. A 40-inch plasma TV that is constantly running this loop showing you, take off your coat, take off your belt, take off your shoes, put everything in the little plastic baggie, and I get up to the line, and the person in front of me is going, oh, I have to take off my belt? Oh, 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 I have to take my laptop out of its holder? Oh, and I'm going... I want to push him through that gate all by myself. I hate waiting. And I know I am not alone. Because I've gone on trips with some of you. (laughs) Waiting is the most difficult thing in the world. And the deal is this. We so often in life find ourselves in that time between the promise and its fulfillment. God has made promises in His Word. And we hang on to those promises, but we are right in that waiting time, and they haven't been fulfilled yet. And we wonder, God, are you there? God, are you interested? Look at our world, and it's all falling apart, and you've made all these promises. When, God, when? What's going on? What's happening to me? Because we find ourselves in that in-between time and life is put on hold and we are waiting. And God seems silent. And the most important lesson in all this is even when God seems silent, He is still at work. And God seldom moves at the pace that we would like Him to. And He seldom does what we want, when we want it, and how we want it done. We are left waiting. On hold. For Zechariah, it was nine months of silence. And it was but a reflection for the nation of Israel who had experienced over 700 years of silence. No prophets, no interventions, no God revelations. And everybody thought, it's over. There is no hope. Kings, conquerors, empires came and went. And here we are, just pawns in the whole scheme of things. And Zechariah has this vision. And it's a vision beyond the political power struggles 
and the wars and the kingdoms and empires. It's something much bigger. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. Now, tell me, does this sound vaguely familiar? Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 730-something years beforehand, Isaiah made this prophecy. And here it is. And and Zechariah is prophesying the very same thing. And he is saying, this is it. This is it. It is about to happen. And though it seems like the sun has been set forever, it's rising. The light is is beginning to shine. God is once more showing himself active in human history in a way that he never, ever had done before by sending his own son. Because the rest of Zechariah chapter 9 goes on, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is it. This is it. This is what our world has been hoping for. And we have the privilege of living 2,000 years on the other side of it. But in a way he had never done before, God said, There is hope. I care about this world. I care about you. So why so long? Why was God silent for 700 years? I don't know all the answers to that, but here's what I do know. After the Assyrians and Babylonians had taken um, Jews out of Israel and brought them over in exile in Assyria and Babylon, When the Persian king came in, he issued a decree that all of those exiles could return back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, back to Judah. And so, through one king, one emperor, God allowed his people back to the land he had promised them. And the Greeks came along, and they brought a unifying language And that through the Greek empire, everyone, no matter what their home tongue was, no matter what language they had grown up with, everyone learned to speak Greek. And now there was a unifying language that everybody can communicate across ethnic boundaries and barriers. And then come the Romans, who established a travel system and a trade system and roads like no tomorrow like nobody had ever seen before. And now there is a way for people to travel to bring this message of hope to a whole world, the whole known world at its time. The Romans held all of it. And now there is a way to spread that message. It is a unique place in human history. It is a time in human history where the politics and and the 
and, and the, the wars and all of those things came into alignment in such a way that it's never been since. And there was one more thing that the Romans brought. They brought a means of capital punishment called crucifixion to an area of the world that had never heard of such a thing. And in that, God was preparing a way because this little baby wasn't just born as hope. He died on a cross in hope so that you and I could find the forgiveness of sin, to find the restoration of that relationship, to find the redemption of our souls, no matter what our past. Because God intervened at a unique time and place in human history. And because he has done that, there is always, always hope. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.